This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, we'll get started. Uh, welcome to the Pollock Theater. I am your host of the Script to Screen series, Matt Ryan, uh, the Department of FMS, Film Media Studies, Carsey Wolf Center, and co-sponsors tonight, UCSB Reads and the Kegel Institute Autism Center is really proud to have shown this movie to you all tonight. Uh, a special thanks to UC, our awesome Pollock Theater interns. They're the ones who actually produced this event, did all the research, trying to prepare for it, uh, prepped it, directed it. So if you want to say after the show, give them a nice yeah. little pat on the back. Um, so tonight we have a very, we're, we're honored to have the Oscar-winning screenwriter, Barry Morrow. Uh, appreciate you coming to our Pollock Theater stage. Um, sorry, a little bit of problem. It's, it's uh, a fabulous uh, theater. It's it's uh, as good as the Director's Theater where it was first screened uh, December 1988. And uh, I've seen it a few times over the years, but not in a crystal clear screening and audio. And it's fabulous. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming. But before we really get too deep in the Q&A, there's something I think we just have to address, clear oh. the air. Yeah. Uh, just, I think we just have to get it out in the theater and just kind of put it to bed. What's your beef with Kmart? <laughs> Why does it suck? Well, um, they threatened to sue. Uh, of course, you know, it's, Kmart sucks. And, <clears throat> and I, I got nervous because I figured, you know, I would be named. And then I thought, well, wait, if this goes before a jury of my peers, 12 jurors, does Kmart suck? Of course it sucks. We know that. <laughs> you know, uh, what they should have done, and they, and they backed off, is they should have put out a line of underwear called Rainwear. <laughs> but they, they didn't think of that. They wouldn't make a killing off that. They wouldn't. I mean, movie ties are so awesome. Actually, movie. somebody made then underwear that, with Rain Man logo on it. I had two pairs. I wish I'd kept one. Uh, I gave them to some charity, you know fundraiser thing and uh, but they were clean they were not used <laughs> um so let, let's go back to the early days before the movie when you first what was the impotence and the origin come from the idea of doing an autistic story well i hadn't heard the term autism in fact it wasn't really in common usage um in 1988 or 1986 when i met those of you who are here earlier you saw the piece on on kim peak and I ran into Kim at a, um, I was volunteering uh, for a group called the Association for Retarded Citizens. Uh, I got into the whole idea of developmental disabilities when I was just about your age, just out of college. I ran into uh, a fellow who had spent 50 years in a mental institution. And he was a pot scrubber where my wife was a cocktail waitress in a country club. And... I just, um, every night I'd be parked in the in the back of this country club where they made me park my old Studebaker. I couldn't drive, park it in front where the Cadillacs and Mercedes were. And every night he would, this fellow would be looking down at me from the kitchen and I'd wave and he'd wave. And finally there was a Christmas party and I got to go inside and I met him. And next day I found myself getting him toothpaste and the next day it was... Wig spray, he called it. You know, it was hairspray. And um, 
uh, you know, we were, I took care of him then till he died. And it was just something that was like hard for me to get out of, you know, it's like for Tom Cruise, it, it, people grow on you. And so I decided when Bill died, and by the way, we made a movie about it. Mickey Rooney played Bill, yeah, Bill. and yeah. Dennis Quaid played me. Um, we were really young then, all of us, even Dennis. <laughs> and um, so I was volunteering for these organizations just kind of as a way to honor Bill. And then I bumped into Rain Man. I mean, his name wasn't Rain Man. It was Kim Peek. And I spent like a day or two with him and his father. And as I flew home from Arlington, Texas, um, I couldn't get this character out of my mind. And my uh, my agent and my manager and all the people who are telling you, people who are telling you what you should or shouldn't do for your career said, "Do not do another thing about handicapped people." Because I'd been a television writer, I'd done several TV movies of the week, and and they all had these these characters, these damaged people, which I f- found more interested more interesting than the than the slightly damaged executives I was always working with. <laughs> and so and I just realized, I said, no, I'm going to do one more. And, um, and it was this, and I'm glad I did it. <laughs> so, uh, how much, so how much, you had the two days, did you keep talking to him as you were developing the story, Kim? And- uh, well, I just asked him questions, and I was trying to stump him, which, you know, people have done from across this country. And if you saw the, that first little clip uh, earlier... He's at Oxford, England, and, uh, you know, these Oxford scholars, you know, couldn't come up with a question that he didn't know the answer to. He's been judged to be the single most learned human being that's ever lived. Uh, he, his knowledge quotient, or IKQ, um, is off the charts. Um, he, he's encyclopedic when he reads something, and he's read tens or hundreds of thousands of books. Once he sees it, it's in his brain forever. He cannot lose it. In fact, and I didn't discover this until a while, a ways into our friendship, if he wants to read um, fast, he, which he can do anyway, like it's eight seconds per page or something like that, um, he can double that speed by reading the left page with his left eye and the right <laughs> page with his right eye. <laughs> Or upside down or in a mirror. It doesn't matter. It's a, it's a photo scan. It goes into the hard disk drive and it stays there forever. So, um, you know, I, I, I realized immediately that this, this was a unique person in all of creation. I didn't know if I could write a story about his real life because it was very similar in some ways to the thing with Bill and, and mine. So I basically took the Bill formula, which was about friendship and sort of altruistic motives and stuff, and flipped it. And I came up with a with a ego-driven, selfish Charlie Babbitt, who I thought was the opposite of me. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, and it developed from there. I didn't really know if I had a movie, though, I knew I had a story. I had great characters. I didn't have that sort of movie thing that television movies that I had worked on didn't really need because um, they weren't selling movie tickets. They were selling commercial breaks. But when I, when I stumbled on the idea of Vegas, 
and car, count, uh, counting cards, then I, then I knew I had it. But I don't gamble, or I mean, I, I would if I could, but I don't really do it. And I didn't know if I knew enough to write it, and I didn't know if, if Kim could do it. So I took him to Reno, Nevada. <laughs> and um, I bought him a little book called How to Beat the Casino. <laughs> and I went to the bathroom. I went to get some uh, aspirin or something. I had a headache that day. was gone for 10 minutes, came back, sat down. I said, now I want to explain to you about uh, counting cards and the whole idea what they were here. And he said, you know, I read the book. And I said, no, the, the book that I gave you, you've read this before? No. I said, oh, well, that's what, we're, that's what I want to talk to you about. I said, in this book, I read the book. <laughs> when, when did you read the book? When I went in the bathroom or the, whatever? I read the book, yeah. I said, all right. Let me see. A little bit like Charlie Rabbit. You know, come on, prove it. Flip to page 27 or whatever. I started reading the first few lines, and then he took over, and he read the next several lines. I said, okay, can you do this? You know, one, one for bad, two for good. And that was the, like, I think that's when I came up with that. He said, yes, he could do it, but he would not. What do you mean you won't? It's not fair, Barry Morrow. It's not fair. <laughs> I said, right, it's not fair. I said, Kim, take a look around this place. See where we are? You see all this, all this, the chandeliers and all this stuff and the chairs we're in. And I said, this is all here because it's not fair. <laughs> but for one day, one hour, five minutes, can we just flip? You know, the unfairness, and, and he wouldn't do it. But as we left, um, and by the way, I was like trying it with cards and see if he could do it, and he could do it. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't sure I could do it. Yeah, but uh, as we left, he, uh, I said, would you play a slot machine? He said, yeah, he would do that because that's fair. And so I gave him whatever it was, you know, 50 cents or chip or whatever they had. He went over, pulled it, swear to God, I mean, he didn't win like tens of thousands of dollars, but he, he won like 30 bucks. <laughs> First pull, it just sat there, ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. And I thought to myself, this is too cosmic, you know. <laughs> he, he won because he's moral. And I don't because I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> you could have financed a whole movie if you won in Reno. Independent. There's a lot of movies I like to still finance. <laughs> Um, so I noticed Kim, uh, I, would, I don't want to say functional, he was socially he was a little more adept, it seems, than Dustin Hoffman's character. Well, um, yes, but you, you see him in the documentary after the movie Rain Man, mm. which is my new theory about curing autism is you've got to make a movie about a person. <laughs> and then when they go through that whole process of being looked at differently, treated differently by you know, strangers, by family, uh, by everybody something happens. And Kim, when I first met him, he was... He, he wouldn't look at you or me or anybody, and he, you know, he was just like Dustin Hoffman. Um, only he did kind of make jokes. They just didn't make any sense. And, and he could laugh and do more emotional range than Hoffman ultimately decided to do. Um, I only had one subject to study, which was Kim Peek. 
it was before the internet. I couldn't Google savants. I couldn't Google autism. I had to go to libraries. You, you guys don't remember this stuff. And um, it was hard. There was nothing written. You know, it, 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 and there were no experts I could talk to. So I just used my guy, Kim. And when Dustin Hoffman came on, he he's like very thorough. He like immediately put together a researching team. They have, you know, they could make long-distance calls. It doesn't cost them money like it did to me in those days. And, like, he, got, he found the five guys in this country who are, you know, savants of that caliber. And he met all of them, and he kind of finally decided who he could do. And he could do Joe Sullivan and another guy whose name I forget right now that was in a 60-minute special better than he could do to Kim. And I'm not quibbling with his choices. How much time did you spend with Dustin, or did you? Uh, Dustin was the first one in, so the producer that I brought this into, um, they sent it actually, CAA, the agency that represented Hoffman, Levinson, Cruz at the time, and not me, which was not good, but I eventually went with them, and they didn't help me at that point. It was too late. Um, they uh, um, they set up this meeting with Dustin Hoffman and me in a restaurant in Malibu, and uh, he quizzed me for like an hour about like the veracity of of this story. He hadn't met Kim yet, and I just told him you know what happened, and he listened, listened, question, question, and then he stopped and he started doing all these characters in a mental institution that he worked in in New York back when he was a young, struggling actor. He was rooming at the time with, I think, Robert Duvall and one other, like, really famous actor. And uh, so he worked on a psych ward. And he started doing all those guys. And it was like... And there were other people at a restaurant. We, they gave us kind of like the end where we were, had some privacy, but... Everybody knew Dustin Hoffman was in the restaurant and everybody was watching and, and he's getting up and he's doing different guys and the way they walk and it was like, you know, wow, what a master, you know. And so, honestly, when I was writing this, I, I never think about who will be in the movie. That's ridiculous. I mean, it, 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 the writer has very little say and even, even the directors have very little say because it depends on who's available, when they're available, how it comes together, if you can afford them, all of that stuff. This was not a high-budget movie. So, um, but I remember when I finished it and, you know, I talked to my wife and stuff and she said, who do you see in it? And I said, you know, Dustin Hoffman. So when I found, when I found out he wanted to meet with me and then we had several meetings and then he was in before, way before Tom Cruise. Cruise came in very much toward the end. Because I had written the guys um, closer to age. Mm. And when they said Tom Cruise is going to do it, I was really bummed. Because, first of all, he had just done the movie Cocktail. You know, not exactly the, 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 you know, the next step mm. down. He was so young. He's 25. You know, to see him. Wasn't that a trip? You know, you guys, <laughs> you, you know him, a different actor. Baby face. And Hoffman was twice his age, 50. I thought, how is this going to work? Nobody's going to be, believe their brothers. Even though I have a sister who has, was 25 years older than my youngest brother, I know it's possible, but it's, is it plausible? Is it believable? Will you suspend your disbelief? 
when you see them coming down the escalator in their matching suits, it's like, wow, brothers, you know, no question. So I'm, I'm wrong about half the time. <laughs> well, I thought Tom, Tom was great. I mean, it was one of his best roles. He, said he just came out of, like, all the right moves, risky business, and, you know. He kind of became an actor. No, and you know, and and he brought in a young crowd. Uh, you know, Hoffman, of course, was going to bring in people my age group and stuff. And Cruz just made the thing young and cool and hip. And uh, Levinson was, you know, impeccable in his taste. The music Hans Zimmer did first big movie he did. Um, you don't realize how average movies are until until you watch the the director's cut dry. You know, no, no, no music, no sound effects. You know, it's you swear this is going to be the worst movie ever. <laughs> and then music informs the emotions that you're hoping are there. Um, so it took kind of like all, all the stars had to align, especially Tom and Dustin's. And then this kind of magic happened and. You know, I watched it tonight for the first time in a, like I said, in a, in a, a good print with great sound, and then I realized again, yeah, it is a good movie. And so, and I found Tom really interesting because it's almost like he's caring for a disabled person, someone with Alzheimer's. And I think it was a really fascinating choice taking somebody like Tom Cruise having to care for somebody, yeah, who is like you said, completely selfish. I, I had nothing to do with it. I was against it. I take all that back. You know. <laughs> And uh, and Tom was for all you read, you know, in in uh, the grocery store line there. Um, I don't know what he's like now. I haven't seen him in years, but couldn't have been nicer, more deferential, respectful, grateful. You know. Did you meet with him or talk with him about the character? Or? Well, uh, as we got closer to making the film, the writers went on strike. That was a ni- famous 1988 strike. One of those strikes where we don't win anything, but we stay home, <laughs> and like all of them. And so I met Tom and stuff, but mostly it was I got to know Tom more on the award circuit, you know, the Golden Globes and the German uh, uh, Golden Bear and the Italian Donatellos and all those awards, and then of course the Oscars. Um, but uh, Dustin I worked with, and Tom I didn't. It was almost better in some ways because Tom, you know, Dustin and you had the connection of caring for somebody, understanding that connection to Sable. It was almost interesting that Tom didn't have that because it made, it, I think, his character stronger. Yeah, like, he was just like, clueless. I was, yeah. like well, I was when I started off with Bill and, you know, I picked him up that morning and we went to get toothpaste and, uh, and like, he just, everything he did was, like, weird and surprising and, but I was young and it was hippie days and those were the people who you, you, you were with all the time anyway but because uh, they were altered states kind of people <laughs> so I, I kind of realized you know alright Bill's retarded he's got the IQ of they were saying 47 which means you shouldn't be able to tie a shoe and you could do a lot of things and well, how am I connecting to this guy why do I like to be with him why do I why am I picking up him up now once a week and I was in a band then and why am I taking him I don't know, except I realized it was easy to be with him. It was better to be with him than not. So, selfish again. <laughs> uh, I, I love the, bro- the brother relationship. It was, that, it was always the heart of the story, uh, the two brothers? Sure, or? because 
<clears throat> you know, one of the like the deepest, most ancient uh, yearnings that humans have is the like is the unity of the of the group, and within that, the family. And you know, we all come from. We all have stories here of how our lives have been hurt by fractures in the family, and we just from kids whose parents are divorced to siblings who are estranged. I mean, we 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 hate that brokenness. And so if you can do a movie, which is always about the discomfort of life and pain, if you can do a movie and tap into some really primal themes and then pay them off in a way that is satisfying but maybe not saccharine, um, it should resonate. And that's, that's again, that's the kismet we tapped into here. And the fact that Tom Cruise is so much younger, what you said originally in your plan, that opened up the door of you know, making him not even know his brother. Yeah. Yeah, so well, the, in, the, in the original story, there was still the <clears throat> he was he would just have to have been taken out even sooner, you know. Right. Oh. Um, but like, here's what a here's what a, a director like Levinson brings to a script that I didn't do that I didn't. Uh, but when I wrote them, there was like five years, six years difference, or something like that. And so now, um, if you've got Dustin Hoffman, you've got a guy who's very near his age. And he spent 25 years as a loser to be in the position he is. Whereas Tom Cruise is, he's young, he's 20-something, you know, he's, 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 he's going somewhere. So my guy, let's say Gene Hackman, you know, would have been a good choice for Tom Cruise. Um, he would be even more desperate because this is his last shot. He's lived his whole life without any of that money of his dad's. So it changes the dynamics, and the say the Gene Hackman, Hackman guy in in the opening scenes of my movie, the first draft, he was working in one of these telephone solicitation places, you know, where you got row after row of people on phones trying to sell you, you know, soft water heaters and all that stuff they do, and and he was like the manager of that, walking up and down the aisles and slapping on the table and doing the same thing, but. My thing was not sexy like gray market Ferraris. And uh, mine was good, too. Oh, was great. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Uh, I find the challenging is obviously Tom Cruise reached, this character Tom Cruise reached Dustin Hoffman more than anybody else could because they were brothers. But it was interesting because it had to be very subtle because you can't obviously, you know, have Dustin Hoffman suddenly be cured or like those little moments like the main man, Charlie Babbitt, is my favorite moment in the movie. Yeah. You know that there's been a lights, but it was a subtle twitch. Is that kind of the dynamic you had to do? Like, you had to develop the relationship, but you can't overdo it. Well, the, um, you know, the movie that they did do, the one successful movie that was kind of similar to this back in the 60s, was a movie called um, Charlie, uh, based on the, the book The Flowers for Algernon. And it, the conceit there was sort of sci-fi, was that there's this guy, Charlie, Cliff Robertson, uh, who won the Academy Award that year. You know, it's... There's a pattern, my left foot, I could go on, Forrest Gump, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Charlie uh, uh, was a guy who, through a, through a scientific experiment, was made whole and normal through the course of the movie. And the, his female doctor fell in love with him. And then at the end of the movie, she sees that he's regressing and he's going back. And... And that will be lost. And so 
Um, that had the kind of um, that kind of reversal is a, is a real movie kind of an idea. This was supposed to be more like a slice of life. Two guys on a road for a week, uh, disconnected, and become connected. And that disconnect is is what the movie is 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 um, what it works on. Always, uh, it's what makes it funny. It's what makes it poignant. And when their foreheads touch mm. at the end, that is the only. That, that's the connection. As subtle as it is, you asked. Subtle as it is. That should probably be the moment at which you feel the most in the movie. And uh, I'd been in many audiences that were quiet. It's a quiet moment. And so you do hear, you know, some little sniffling and a little... Some, and, and, and when I first heard that, I knew that it worked. Well, it was a great setup because, I mean, the whole movie, he can't be touched. I mean, he freaks out. And yeah. that a little tiny... Which is what was great was subtle about it. I mean, it's... It's not completely true because they danced. They I mean, danced. Every time you needed them to do something, this is what movies are great at, you'll do it. But you don't do it in a way that calls attention to itself. And um, it's, this is not supposed to be like a, you know, it never was intended to be a profile of a person with autism. Um, and it won, the one bad thing it did was... Uh, Afterward, if, if people would say, well, my daughter or son is autistic, they would say, uh, okay, I was, you know, I was born on uh, April 2nd, 1994. You know, was it a Tuesday? Well, they don't know. They're not savants. The savant syndrome is so small within the autistic spectrum that um, it did that small disservice. But that's overshadowed by the fact that it made autism you know a household word and it as the speakers said earlier um you know brought attention research money all kinds of stuff that by the way i had no intention you know it's not i'm not taking credit for that it's just a matter of fact and um so every brain is different you know every single brain is different we're all on a spectrum of some kind and um you know, appreciating and understanding and giving people slack for their different brain is something we need to do more of. Well, and, and let's be, I mean, autistic uh, children especially, they get shunned, so they become more withdrawn. It's a vicious yeah. cycle. The fact that he became, you know, you said it opened up after the movie because people actually came to him respectfully. Yeah. They were interested in him, and they probably brought him out of his shell, to so to speak, not to. Cam you know. Peak, Rain Man, you know. <laughs> That he couldn't do anything like that. I mean, is in there again? His gestures, his words, are they're they're kind of inappropriately too loud or whatever. But you know, you see a personality emerge, and uh, that's why I said what I said in the documentary. I n- never write people off. It's absolutely the wrong thing to do, whether it's your kids or your parents. I, I my one of my best friends just died a few days ago at ninety three, and you know. Uh, he lost. He he outlived everybody, and you know everyone had sort of written him off as this old guy who'd lived his life. And just the few things he said to me in the final days, you know, were so profound. You know, the gifts that he kept giving. So never quit. And also, my one of my favorite scenes was the actual the uh, when the smoke alarm goes off. Because yeah. you're almost feeling hope that, okay, they're connecting, maybe, and it almost reminds you of the same time, you know, 
that he needs special help that Tom Cruise couldn't give. Well, this is you just touched on something big, and I can I will confess I didn't write that scene. Um, uh, that's because there was a big debate between Hoffman, Levinson, everybody involved as to the ending. Um, do they go their separate ways? How, how much of a connection is made? Should he go back to the institution? Should he not? Because I got into this whole idea of, of developmental disabilities in the movement young, and my friend was a man who spent 46 years locked up when he shouldn't have been there a day. It was very hard for me to write a screenplay where you send a guy back to an institution. And it wasn't working because there was no reason to send him back. You saw the movie. You saw what happened. You saw how Tom Cruise felt. Charlie Babbitt felt about Raymond when he got with those lawyers and stuff. And there's an, it would have been a dissatisfying ending unless you have a movie scene where he is at such risk. Tom's just in the other room. Raymond's left alone for a few minutes, starts a smoke alarm. And it wasn't the smoke alarm or the fire. It was banging yeah. his head against the glass. And when the audience sees that, Everything stops about maybe these guys could do it together, make it happen, you know. No, he needs protection. And then everything worked in the end. And Levinson made that scene up while they were shooting. Because it really ties in well, because earlier, of course, when uh, the bathtub scene, mm-hmm. which you, you learned that why really the reason t- he went in the institution in the yeah. first place. So it was a great kind of bookend. Well, and you learn what, 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 why it's called Rain Man. Yeah. Because of the brother Raymond. And that was one of the weird things about this movie playing internationally Raymond and Rain Man don't necessarily connect in different languages it doesn't have that dual so the movie had all these weird names in different countries I had a list of them once and uh, they were really funny yeah yeah, apparently we talked a little before uh, earlier that you mentioned Japan had an interesting kind of a love affair with Rain Man normally um at that time, at least, I don't know what, what, what the deal is now, but North America has the biggest box office you know, receipts for North American films, Hollywood films. Then it's usually like Germany, France, or England, depending on the subject matter, and those are big countries, big lot of population. Rain Man, the second grossest, highest grossing country, was Japan. And that's not, you know tremendously populous country and and they don't necessarily watch as many western films as you know other countries my son is married to a a a woman who's half japanese so her mother is japanese and i asked her why 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 was was rain man such a big deal in japan and she said well because the japanese people identify with raymond um I said, what do you mean? They identify he's autistic and all that. And they said, well, he's quiet. He's you know, reserved. Um, he's really smart. Um, he's maybe not appreciated as much by, like, bosses and other people. And she said, we had a simpatico kind of connection with that character. And the other thing I learned, which is really fun about Japan, at least then, 
it, uh, they didn't spend a lot of uh, money marketing uh, a picture there because, like, in the first couple of nights, people go to the theater. When they leave, if they like a movie, they make up all their own posters at home and they go out and they, they put them up on walls and foam poles and stuff and they say, see, Rain Man, it's great. <laughs> and so you got this, like, you know, juggernaut of uh, thousands and thousands of ad people out there unpaid advertising your movie and so it snowballed in japan it's the only rain man poster i had i had you know framed is the one from japan because it's just so cool if you guys want to graffiti tag the pollock theater go right ahead anytime you want um so it was um so uh, there's also ronald bass was uh, so how did that work relationship between uh you and Ronald, the other co-screenwriter. Well, um, again, the, the movie was going to be shot. We knew the writer's strike was coming. Levinson, first of all, we went through a whole bunch of directors. Um, Sidney Pollack, Steven Spielberg, uh, Marty Brest was the first one. And uh, they all, you know, fell aside for different reasons, creative reasons, uh, scheduling reasons and stuff. Levinson came on very close to the end. And uh, Ron Bass had been his lawyer, uh-huh. and so and he was a screenwriter of, 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 of renown too. And so they had like a week or something like that to work together to get Levinson's ideas into the movie. And he decided, you know, to go with Ron and not me. And it's okay. I mean, Ron and I spent all all these award banquets, you know, sitting together with our wives and stuff. And so. Um, and it's now it's the, you know, you don't see a movie with, uh, with less than a couple of names in the credits and, and, and that's how the director gets their vision by never giving too much power to one writer. <laughs> of course. Uh, we always end our last question. Uh, the same question. Uh, can you tell us about a memorable movie theater experience you had as a youngster? Can I have three? Please. All right, well, just for the sheer cinematic, you know, experience, Wizard of Oz in the theater, you know, um, those damn flying monkeys and stuff. Oh, man, <laughs> it was like, um, it was just so good and wonderful and scary. And, and, uh, and then for physical, I guess, physical um, memory, there was a movie called The, the Tingler. And it was uh, uh, like a horror movie, shock movie, really corny. And um, I've read about this, and and they they have it wrong in the books because I went to a Saturday matinee, took a bus with a friend. We were probably about 10, 11 years old. Went to the theater. There were maybe 30 kids there. And when we sat down in the seats and the movie started, I noticed every once in a while some of the kids would go, Whoa! And like, what the heck, you know? And then another, like, a scary part would come up, and they go, oh! <laughs> and, and then they started looking at their seats and things. And, oh! What they had done is they wired up the theater with little electrical shocking devices. <laughs> and you can't, you couldn't do that today, right? You know? <laughs> but then we were all guinea pigs, and I, I got one that was dead or it wasn't working and so 
Uh, you know, the word started to spread. Hey, it feels funny on my butt, you know. And, <laughs> and so, so we kept moving around, and then we found they worked, and we found ones that really worked, you know. And, and so, uh, so it had that. And then also, in the movie The Tingler, you know, there's the projection booth up there, right? In the movie, the, 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 the husband and wife who owned this movie theater, The Tingler, which is like a kind of a caterpillar that like yeah, looks like a vertebrae and, and it comes on like it gets you and 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 then it kills you somehow. And in the in the movie, the movie projector and his wife guy people are are watching and all of a sudden the film stops. And then you hear a scream and then you see the tingler go across the shadow. Okay? So that is in the movie. In the theater, uh, when that hap- happened, th- they did it the same thing in our theater. Oh, and, and then there was a woman, like she looked like a bag lady, and, and it was all kids in the movie theater. And one lady, lady, it was probably a guy with a with a wig and stuff, and he, and he or she got up and went, "Oh, the tingler!" and and then fell down on the floor. <laughs> And at the back of the theater, the, the doors burst open. Two guys with white coats and a stretcher came running down, and somebody did one of those. <laughs> Loaded this person on and took off with them. Um, they don't do this stuff anymore. <laughs> uh, we are actually going to do it next week now. Uh, okay. Because there's no way we're not doing that. That's all and, right. and, uh, and then my third one would be any movie my dad ever took me to. Uh, because uh, he didn't like fiction that much, but he would take me to these like National Geographic specials. White Wilderness. It was all about polar bears and penguins. And, yeah, I mean, it's on the Nature Channel every night. You can see it now. But, but you didn't see this stuff then. There was no way to, you know, except in books. And icebergs falling and all that stuff. And he was enthralled and I was enthralled to be with him and and I was learning and it wasn't a movie movie but it was a movie experience okay. yeah that's a great experience those are great experiences yeah uh, well I'd like to thank Barry Morrow for coming <laughs> thank you thank you uh, if you like, we have a we have a few eleven by seventeen posters. You know, if you want to get some autograph, I have a few left. Remember our trivia contest. Uh, please come back on February twenty sixth. We're showing the movie Hard Candy. I don't know a lot of people remember that movie, but it launched Ellen Page's career. So we had the screenwriter and producer who's going to break down how uh, this one million dollar movie got made into a Sundance hit and launched Ellen Page. So please come back and uh, thank you for coming to Script to Screen. And be proud of this theater. This is a fantastic venue you have. I was on this campus in 1968, and they didn't have this then. So <laughs> be grateful for, for what you have. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was great. Good. That was great. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.